You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Trigger warning. This episode will go in depth about the horrors of slavery, violence, and murders that took place during Nat Turner's insurrection. The details are graphic. Please take care while listening. If you need to pause the episode and come back at a later time, please do so. Let's talk about slavery. No, no, let's really talk about slavery. Slavery in America is a topic that most people, especially in modern times, like to avoid talking about altogether, whether it's the antebellum period overall, slavery's horrors, or the aftermath of slavery, Jim Crow, the Black Codes, the school-to-prison pipeline, reparations. They would like to just move forward and leave it in the past. There could be various reasons for this. For some, it is just too painful to discuss, and for others, it was so long ago. So why care? Here's a little perspective. Slavery in the United States lasted over 400 years. Lasted longer, depending on who you ask. So regardless of how horrific or uncomfortable the topic is, it's a huge part of this nation's history. But this begs the question, if slavery was so bad, why did it go on for so long? Why didn't the enslaved people rise up, fight back, and free themselves? Well, they did. The moment people realized they were considered property and the gravity of their situation, they fought back. Over 250 slave rebellions and even more plots to rebel took place leading up to slavery being abolished in 1865. And I said abolished with an asterisk because, you know, and I know, that it never truly ended. This number doesn't include individuals or small groups who fled to free lands or strategized their way to freedom, or those who rebelled in small ways like poisoning their master's food, using their preferred names in private, or learning to read in secret. The spirit of rebellion was alive and well, and one of the most well-known rebellions is the Southampton Insurrection, led by none other than Nat Turner. I'm Andre, and this is the Redacted History Podcast. This episode will tell the story of Nat Turner and the story of the rebellion he led that would alter the course of this country's history. On October 2nd, 1800 in Southampton, Virginia, Nat Turner was born to his parents as the property of Benjamin Turner. When Benjamin died, his son Samuel inherited the plantation. This would be the first two in the long line of people that Nat Turner would find himself enslaved to. Although born into slavery, his mind was always free. He worked in the fields picking corn and tobacco like everyone else, but it was clear from a young age that Nat was different from the other children. For starters, in the beginning, at least, he had two loving parents and a grandmother who saw greatness in him. Family was one of the hardest things to hold on to during slavery, because enslaved people were seen as property. It was seen as nothing but a mere action to split up a mother from her children or a husband from his wife, because in the eyes of the master, these relationships did not exist. It was not different than selling off the furniture in your house piece by piece, selling the legs to a dining room table or the pillows and cushions to a couch. 
Later, Nat's father would run away to freedom, and unfortunately, the two of them would never reconnect. We can only hope that he made it. Another crucial skill that set Nat apart was that he could read. It's unconfirmed who exactly taught him to do this, but he learned quickly. It was in his childhood that he began to read and study the Bible. Back then, it was illegal for enslaved people to know how to read and write, so the fact that he did, and he did it well, was remarkable. It's estimated that only about 10% of enslaved people knew how to read. Nat, from a very young age, was very intelligent. It was also widely believed that he possessed other gifts from God than just his intellect. When Nat was born, he was born with markings on his body that indicated he would be a prophet. This was according to the spiritual beliefs held within his community. Many enslaved people held a belief in God combined with traditions that had been passed down. As a child, he was said to tell true stories about events that happened before he was born, about people that he had never even met. The people in his community were shocked by this. They had no idea how he knew the things that he knew. When he read the Bible and familiarized himself with the word of God, he began to develop his own ideas and understanding. This made him not only knowledgeable, but dangerous. He knew the Bible forwards and backwards. He felt that he and God had a personal relationship. He spent a lot of time reading the Bible, praying, meditating, fasting, and dreaming of something different. Now, the relationship with enslaved people and the Bible and Christianity and religion as a whole is complicated in the way that we see it in present day. The Bible is often referenced as a key text in keeping people enslaved, but seldom do we hear about stories like this one, where the Bible sparked ideas of freedom from bondage. But because Nat could read it for himself, he saw the truth in messages like the story of Moses freeing his people in Exodus. In 1821, Nat ran away from his plantation. He had been beaten badly and had enough. He spent about a month in the woods surviving on next to nothing. While in the woods, he would experience what he described as one of his first visions from God. Although he was effectively living as a free man, God told him that he should return to his plantation to serve his earthly master. Back on the plantation, he performed all of his regular duties once he returned. He became a husband and a father. His wife is believed to have been a woman named Cherry. The exact number of children they had, or if this was even his wife's name, remained disputed. The widely accepted consensus is that they had two children who survived into adulthood. Being married while enslaved was complicated, to say the very least. Parenting had its own set of challenges. You never knew when your husband, wife, or children could be sold off, killed, or raped, sometimes right in front of you. As with many couples, Nat and Cherry were split up and worked at different plantations after Samuel, their second owner, died. The silver lining was that at least they were still somewhat close by. But more importantly, he continued to study the Bible and preach to others. He truly believed that he was a prophet and as such strayed away from activities that conflicted with this belief. Those who knew Nat at the time would describe him as a mysterious person and Nat didn't mind it. He intentionally isolated himself from people. He continued to spend much of his free time praying, fasting, and reading the Bible. In 1825, he even baptized a man, a white man by the name of Elthadred T. Brantley, who in turn baptized Nat. Nat had begun to amass a decent following, 
he and others who were enslaved would take it upon themselves to be baptized because they were not allowed to do so in the church. Black people and white people attended church together in this area, but not as brothers and sisters in Christ, but as owner and property. Needless to say, he was underestimated. Most white people at the time definitely didn't think that Nat was any kind of mastermind that could pull anything off that would actually result in something. So they largely ignored his sermons and teachings. And in the event that he got a little too overzealous, he would be beaten as a punishment. Around this same time, he began having visions. The first vision is described by PBS as follows. He saw lights in the sky and prayed to find out what they meant. Then Nat said, while laboring in the field, I discovered drops of blood on the corn as though it were due from heaven. And I communicated it to many, both white and black in the neighborhood. And then I found on the leaves in the woods, hieroglyphic characters and numbers with the forms of men in different attitudes portrayed in blood and representing the figures I had seen before in the heavens. This vision for Nat meant war was coming. The second vision explained to Nat how things would play out. It reads as follows, quote, I heard a loud noise in the heavens and the spirit instantly appeared to me and said the serpent was loosened and Christ had laid down the yoke he had borne for the sins of men and that I should take it on and fight against the serpent for the time was fast approaching when the first should be last and the last should be first and by signs in the heavens that it would make known to me when I should commence the great work and until the first sign appeared I should conceal it from the knowledge of men and on the appearance of the sign I should arise and prepare myself and slay my enemies with their own weapons." Unquote. I'll let you interpret all of that for yourself, but with this idea in his head, a plan began to form and Nat radicalized his message. He began preparing for what he believed would be a sign from the heavens to start the revolution. He knew this plan could only be successful if he played his cards right. A few more years went by before Nat would look into the sky and see what he believed to be his first sign. One afternoon on February 20th, 1831, there was a solar eclipse. Nat just so happened to be in what scientists call the path of totality, the path where you can see the eclipse. The sun was blocked out by the moon. There's a lot of symbolism that could be read into this moment. Something as small as the moon could darken the light from the sun. To add some modern context, we know that solar eclipses happen pretty consistently but they are only visible in certain parts of the world at certain times. According to NASA, for a lot of places on Earth, total solar eclipses are only visible once every 100 years or so. Contrary to popular belief, the uprising didn't begin right after that sign. That's when Nat started to spread the word and get his team together, the chosen few who would help him start the uprising. Successful or unsuccessful, the punishment for planning to revolt was death. Just a few years prior in South Carolina, a man by the name of Denmark Vesey was hanged for planning an uprising, but we'll cover that another time. Nat's team wasn't a very large team, about seven, including Nat. Henry, Hark, Jack, Nelson, Sam, and Will were the men who made up his trusted few. Their initial plan was to revolt on July 4th, a nod to the Independence Day observed nationwide, but Nat became very sick and the moment had passed. So they continued work, waiting for what they were sure would be another sign to come. 
and on August 13, 1831, nearly five months after the eclipse, the sun would take on almost a bluish color in the sky. Now, what would cause something like that? At the time, nothing short of a miracle. We know now that way on the other side of the country, Mount Helen had erupted and the volcanic ash in the sky created a haze that distorted the color of the sun. Still wild to think about, a solar eclipse and a volcanic eruption all in one year. That following Sunday, they would all attend church like normal because the town was small and for some of the whites in attendance, this would be the last Sunday coming to church. Only Nat and his few knew what was about to take place in less than 24 hours. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Later that evening, they met deep in the woods. It was very dark with very little light from the moon and stars above and whatever small fires they could make without being seen. They all understood the very real possibility of death and pulling this off wouldn't be easy. As an enslaved person, you are property and you own nothing. There's no concept of privacy, especially not weapons. To acquire a weapon meant having to hide it and keep it secret. All it takes is for one wrong person to catch wind of what you are planning, and that's it. Nat Turner and his trusted brethren faced all of these challenges. Their strategy was simple. In the night, they took up whatever weapons they could find, knives, pitchforks, axes, etc. And on August 21st, 1831, it began. This was a no-mercy situation. That meant every single white person they crossed paths with was going to die. Regardless of a man or a woman, ages 1 to 100, it made no difference. Much like the Haitian Revolution that inspired so many black Americans to uprise, children were not seen as innocent. They were seen as future enslavers or revenge seekers. When they stepped out of the woods, it was dark, very dark, with nothing but their torches to guide them along the way. They stopped to have a drink at a nearby cider press to take the edge off, allegedly. The first stop would be the Travis house. This was the home and the family of the man who currently enslaved Nat. Well, technically, his true owner was the Travis stepson, who was less than 10 years old at the time. So this was extremely personal. And even though Nat didn't think of him as a bad master, especially compared to some of the others, at the end of the day, they still saw him as property. There's no way to ethically own another person because in doing so, you don't see them as a person at all. When they approached the door to the Travis household, it was locked. They needed to be discreet. Otherwise, they would risk waking the entire neighborhood and being met with gunfire, no doubt. They used a ladder to get Nat into the upper floors of the house. Some accounts say he climbed through a window and others say he went down the chimney. Either way, he made his way back downstairs and snuck to the front door and unlocked it, letting the rest of the group into the house. One of the men with him by the name of Will headed for the Travis bedroom with Nat. The couple was sleeping peacefully in their bed. Their sleep was abruptly disrupted by the swing of an axe. Nat missed, but before they even had a chance to defend themselves, they were dead. 
Will delivered the fatal blow. Anyone else found in the house was also killed. This included young children and a baby. The child was so small that they were almost overlooked. The death toll for this household was five. At this point, the group was already as good as dead. If the rebellion was not a success, they would absolutely be hanged for what they had already done. So, they would press on, going house to house, killing any white person they encountered. Three more people died on the path to the Turner's home. Nat Turner's former master. Salathiel Francis came to the door after responding to a knock, and as soon as he opened the door, he was beaten to death. A woman with the last name Reese was killed in her sleep and her son was murdered before he even knew what was going on. They entered her home through an unlocked door. One man, Wiley Francis, escaped with his life after those he enslaved chose to defend him instead of joining the rebellion. The sun was coming up quickly and word was beginning to spread about what Nat and his group were up to. They were losing the cover of night and the element of surprise. When they arrived at the Turner's house, they killed three more people. The door was broken with an axe. The family cried out in fear before being murdered. At this point, the group had about doubled in size, and along the way, they asked more enslaved people to take up arms and join them. They took what supplies they could and carried on. The death toll had now doubled, and things were about to get all the more gruesome. The next group of whites to be killed would be Catherine Whitehead and nearly her entire family. This would include her five children, her mother, and grandmother. She was reportedly dragged out of her home and nearly completely decapitated. Margaret Whitehead, one of those who was murdered with this particular household, was said to be very beautiful, and people also suspected that she may have had some sort of attraction to Nat. This woman is also said to be the only person that Nat actually admitted to killing himself. She almost got away. But Nat caught up with her, and when he did, he beat her to death with a broken-off piece of wooden fencing. She was 18 years old at the time. Her sister managed to survive by hiding underneath her mattress. Her other sister was killed in that very same room. Trapped in hiding, she listened to the entire thing, and when she came out, she witnessed with her own eyes the bloody scene. She fled for the woods and waited all night until the white militia showed up. They continued on from the Whitehead household, to the home of Richard Porter. After Richard, they proceeded to Nathaniel Francis's home. They killed his overseer and his two nephews. The rest of the Francis family was hard to locate. One particular family member was actually hiding in a small hole in the wall. She did so at the advice of one of those she and her family had enslaved. While hiding and eight months pregnant, she passed out from heat exhaustion. Now keep in mind, this was Virginia in August. She emerged from the hole, and while trying to escape, she encountered one of Nat Turner's rebels by the name of Charlotte. Charlotte tried to stab her, but once again, she was saved by another enslaved person by the name of Esther. She hid in the woods all night and well into the next day. At this point, you may be wondering, why didn't everyone side with Nat Turner? Well, some didn't agree with his methods of killing women and children. For some, that was entirely too far. For others, whites in the area didn't seem to care about black women and children, so why, in turn, should they care about hurting their families in return? Some were simply afraid that they would lose their lives if they were associated with the rebellion. After all, many enslaved people had been killed for less. Even if they wanted freedom, this was not a cause they were prepared to die for. And lastly, with so many horror stories of how much worse life could be at other plantations, even though they were enslaved, some people saw their current situation as the lesser of two evils. Things continued in this pattern for the next few houses, killing everyone in sight. 
The unfortunate truth is that by this point, their weapons were beginning to dull. It took many strikes and much more effort to kill. So much so that some people survived simply because the blade they were being stabbed with was not sharp enough to deliver a lethal blow, even though they were still badly injured. At this point, word also began to spread about what was happening, and many whites were fleeing their homes. Any survivors that did get away were starting to tell everyone what was going on. Word spread for miles and miles around. The rumors were even wilder than the already intense situation. White militias from Norfolk to North Carolina began to make their way by the thousands to stomp out the rebellion. Children at the home of Levi Waller were advised to stick together and hunker down until help could come. They were attending school at home. They would be dead before anyone could save them. Levi attempted to get help. His son went to school to alert the other children. Levi was chased by a smaller group that had broken off from the rebellion. He hid amongst the weeds. He fled to the swamps when the coast was clear. When he returned to the schoolhouse, there was nothing but dead bodies. One little girl survived by hiding in a dirt chimney. When the coast was clear, she ran to a nearby swamp as well and waited there for hours until she saw a group of white people. The little girl explained to them that the Lord helped her escape. Mrs. Waller could not save the children, and she was killed immediately. An overseer by the name of Jacob Williams was slit wide open. His wife was forced to lay down beside his body and was murdered along with her children. The army that Nat had formed had grown to a considerable amount. It was almost as large as the number of white people that had managed to kill so far, about 60 people. It would have been more had so many white people been home. But during this time, the wealthier whites were on vacation. They were on the path to Jerusalem, now known as Cortland, to stock up on firearms to help strengthen their arsenal. It almost seems like the stuff of fiction, an enslaved man learning to read and write, leading an uprising, and then taking his newly free companions to Jerusalem. Unfortunately, they would never make it there. A huge party of white men stopped them before they made it there. They were armed and they wasted no time firing shots. At this point in the rebellion, they were outarmed, outnumbered, and they had lost every advantage. They had no choice but to scatter. The group started getting smaller and smaller until only a dozen or so people were left. It was every man for himself. The only option was to run or hide. Nat was able to make a hiding place for himself, a hole. He dug himself a hiding spot. Turner lived in that hole for almost two months with nothing but scraps of food and a sword. He would only leave to gather more supplies, but he hadn't given up. He was actually strategizing a way to regroup. But while Nat hid, things had only gotten worse for enslaved people all over. You see, news of the rebellion had spread and white paranoia was at an all time high. Enslaved black people who weren't even involved, states away, were seeing harsher treatments in an effort to prevent another rebellion before it even had a chance to be thought about. Trials began at the end of that month for those involved in the rebellion. Their representation was just as flimsy as their defense. The only way they would be spared was if the state did not want to pay their owners any damages. That's right, when an enslaved person was killed, their master was able to be financially compensated. Over half of those tried were hanged. The remainder were actually shipped off to Africa, Liberia to be exact. It's estimated that upwards of 120 black people were killed in response to the uprising. Upwards of 3,000 white people were involved in these killings. Some reports say hundreds if you include the revenge killings that happened out of anger all over the South. Some say black people were beheaded and their heads placed on a spike as a warning to others. Don't be like Nat. 
55 white people were killed during Nat Turner's rebellion. Nat was ultimately discovered by a dog who passed by and picked up the scent of the food he had. This drew unnecessary attention to his hiding place. He emerged, and he was met by a man named Benjamin Phipps, who held a rifle in his direction. We all know you can't bring a knife to a gunfight, and so Nat surrendered. The reward for Nat Turner was about $500, or $18,000 today. Nat was thrown in jail and awaited his fate. Thomas Gray, an attorney at the time, met with Nat while he was in jail. Up until this point, no one had been able to get much out of Nat. Everyone wanted to know why he would do this, how he could do this. The reason for some was clear, freedom, but the methods were what turned so many off. Nat agreed to give a statement, allegedly. Thomas Gray presumably turned these words into the Confessions of Nat Turner. Though it is a riveting account, to this day it isn't clear which parts were strictly facts and which were fiction. On November 5, 1831, the Nat Turner trial began. The courthouse had additional security to make sure that everything went smoothly. Surprisingly, Nat pled not guilty, but that didn't matter. There were several witnesses who were more than willing to place him at the scene and corroborate what he had done. The survivors all had stories detailing what they saw that night. It's no surprise that he was found guilty without a shred of hesitation. On November 11, 1831, Nat Turner would pay the ultimate price for seeking his freedom. Hi, I'm Michael Troy, host of the American Revolution podcast on the Airwave Media Network. This podcast is the origin story of the United States, how we went from colonies ruled by a king to the democratic republic that we enjoy today. The American Revolution podcast tells the story of the revolution from beginning to end, starting with the events leading up to the war, including a look at the French and Indian War and pre-war disputes. We then go through the war itself and eventually reach the founding of a new nation based on principles of democratic government. Along the way, there are lots of great stories of both selfishness and sacrifice, some unbelievable human achievements, and some all-too-familiar examples of greed, self-dealing, and betrayal. Please subscribe for free to the American Revolution podcast, available on all major podcast platforms. I hope you will join me today on the American Revolution podcast. Many historical accounts describe him as having been at peace. He wasn't hysterical or crying or pleading for his life. He was fully prepared. To this day, there's nowhere that anyone can go to visit Nat Turner's body. After he was hanged, his body was broken into pieces, bones taken home as symbols of victory. Rumor has it that he was even skinned and that the skin was dried and used to make different souvenirs. Whatever remained after parts of him were divided up were discarded in an unmarked grave. The distant relatives inheriting his now deceased master's estate would receive compensation for his death as it was now considered lost property. There's even rumors and accounts that some white people took parts of Nat Turner's body and turned it into furniture and put it in their food. His Bible, however, was preserved over the years and now sits in the African American History Museum in D.C. It sat in the courthouse for decades until it was given to the descendants of a family who were killed during the rebellion. They could have destroyed it, but they didn't. In 2002, a skull appeared, believed to belong to Nat. Allegedly, it had been passed down by the descendants of one of the doctors who actually dissected his body. She gave it to her doctor, who continued to pass it down and ultimately handed it over to be on display. 
In 2016, a skull was handed over to Nat's descendants. They gave it to the Smithsonian, who will determine through DNA testing if it in fact belongs to Nat. Even with Nat dead, this rebellion still started a conversation across the South. Briefly, Virginia considered outlawing slavery. The Quakers were especially adamant that slavery must come to an end. Maybe it was time to let this system of oppression go, if it was going to lead to these kinds of uprising. The same year Nat was hanged, a bill was passed outlawing preaching by enslaved black people and made it so that any religious meetings needed a chaperone. But of course, that never happened. Instead, they decided to worsen treatment to suppress a rebellion, just like all the other states. In response to this rebellion, several states also ramped up their anti-literacy laws and especially outlawed preaching by black slaves. Nat Turner's rebellion would be one of the last to happen to that degree. This increase in brutality and the story of what happened in Virginia led to more and more conversations about ending slavery. It started a conversation that had been long overdue. But there were white people who were fearful of life after slavery, and so the grip tightened and the divide got wider and wider and wider, thus leading to the boil over that was the Civil War. Today, Nat Turner is celebrated by some, hated by others, and everyone else's worst nightmare. The boogeyman to racist families of the antebellum period. Madman, prophet, murderer, or revolutionary. You be the judge. Until next time. This podcast episode was written and researched beautifully by Jordan Howard and narrated and edited by Andre White. If you like the Redacted History podcast, please consider subscribing, leaving a rating and a review. But the most important thing you can do is subscribe. Go over to our Patreon on our YouTube channel. Leave some love there, too, if you feel so inclined. Thank you for all the support. We'll see you next time.